0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by University of North Carolina Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Democracy's Capital, Black Political Power in Washington, D.C. by Lauren Perlman. From its 1790 founding until 1974, Washington, D.C., capital of the land of the free, lacked democratically elected city leadership. Fed up with governance dictated by white stakeholders, federal officials, and unelected representatives, local D.C. activists catalyzed a new phase of the fight for home rule. Amid the upheavals of the 1960s, they gave expression to the frustrations of black residents and wrestled for control of their city. Bringing together histories of the carceral and welfare states, as well as the civil rights and black power movements, Democracy's Capital narrates this struggle for self-determination in the nation's capital. It captures the transition from black protest to black political power under the Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon administrations, and against the backdrop of local battles over the war on poverty and the war on crime. Through intense clashes over funds and programming, Washington residents pushed for greater participatory democracy and community control. However, the anti-crime apparatus built by the Johnson and Nixon administrations curbed efforts to achieve true home rule, laying the foundation for the next 50 years of D.C. governance. Democracy's capital— Black Political Power in Washington, D.C. by Lauren Perlman, out now from University of North Carolina Press's Justice, Power, and Politics series. Hello, this is your host, Daniel Denver. I was going to take last week off and repost an old episode from the archives on settler colonialism for Thanksgiving, but I thought it was important to get my interview with Jeff Webber on the coup in Bolivia up in a hurry, and so that's what I did. Instead, I'm taking this week off, not as a vacation, but just to catch up on a ton of admin work and reading and whatnot. So... What follows is that episode on settler colonialism, my interview with Paul Freimer from deep in our archives. It's on Freimer's book, Building an American Empire, The Era of Territorial and Political Expansion, which is one of the books that has most impacted my thinking on U.S. history in recent years. This is my second week off ever And it's also three years to the week since we started The Dig in December 2016. We have come a long way, as you will likely notice when you listen to my rather stilted introduction to this interview. Okay, here's Paul Freimer, episode 85, from January 30th, 2018. Happy anniversary to us. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. In the United States today, there's nothing simultaneously ubiquitous and invisible like empire. It's a point I don't tire of making when it comes to the permanent global war on terror. But as I've discussed in past interviews with Aziz Rana and Kelly Lytle Hernandez— The greatest disappearing act of all has been performed just below our feet, right here, stateside. We are living on land from which indigenous people over hundreds of years were violently removed. On some level, everyone knows this. Yet, it's mostly nowhere to be found in the stories that Americans tell ourselves about who we are as a country and how we got here. For more than a century after the revolutionary victory against Great Britain, It was clear to most Americans that America was a white country for white people, destined to expand into vast land that they did not yet control. One day, however, Americans looked in the mirror and saw something different. Amidst the fight against fascism, and then the long-bloody counterinsurgency against global communism, we told ourselves a new story. America, we decided, was a universal project dedicated to promoting its democratic and egalitarian values everywhere. Ever since, the contradictions between the story that Americans have told about themselves and what America was and is, both here and abroad, have unspooled. We became a global superpower, anointed to decide the fates of countless others, even as the demographic makeup of the United States itself became, for many white Americans, increasingly other. Massive public investment created a mass white middle class, which, from its perch in a sprawling constellation of suburbs segregated off from the inconveniently still-present descendants of slaves, came to believe that they had settled this newest frontier and made it blossom on the merit of their own personal initiative. And I could go on to tell more of this story, a story that ends, in many ways, with the presidency of Donald Trump. But I'll leave that to my guest, Paul Freimer, a professor of politics and director of the program in law and public affairs at Princeton University. In his recent book, Building an American Empire, The Era of Territorial and Political Expansion, he provides a close study of the empire that America built in the late 18th and 19th century, a project of geographic expansion that was both facilitated and also limited by the demands of racial engineering. It's a fascinating and disturbing story, one that it's utterly necessary to understand if we are to make sense of the current moment. Before I introduce Paul, I'd like to ask you for your support. Nearly 800 listeners are supporting this podcast on patreon.com slash thedig. Please join them. That's patreo dot com slash Dig. a month all go a long way. If you donate $10 or more, depending on how much you donate, we will send you a book or some books. Please, thank you, and here's the show. Paul Freimer, welcome to The Dig.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Your book starts with a map of the U.S. as it existed in 1790, the territory ceded to the U.S. by the Treaty of Paris signed with Britain after the Revolutionary War. Can you start out by explaining, geographically speaking, what comprised territorially comprised the United States at that point, the state of indigenous people in that territory, and who governed the rest of what would, over the next century, Become a transcontinental empire.
1: So, the Treaty of, of Paris um, included both the thirteen colonies, which were settled by um, what became Americans, um, uh, you know, mostly immigrants from uh, from England. Um, and so, those thirteen col- colonies uh, hovered uh, along the Atlantic uh, seaboard. Um, the Treaty of Paris also, though, included um, extensive lands that stretched really beyond the Appalachian Mountains. Um, to the Mississippi River. That land was uh, largely populated by Native Americans. Um, the British had. Um Left, had left the land uh, unsettled, uh, in fact, restricted settlement uh, to, um, to, to their citizens in that area. And so this was Native American land. There were some exceptions, um, uh, such as uh, uh, Kentucky. what became Kentucky uh, had already had uh, areas of settlement. Um, but uh, by and large, that was Native American land. And as you moved west, um, uh, the, the same story is true. The one addition, of course, is the hovering European empires that are there, and that's the French, the British, uh, the Spanish. Um, They have some settlements um, as you go across the continent, Uh, the French in New Orleans— some, you know, some samplings of of, of settlements uh, in the Northwest Territory area, you know, around Detroit, and and that both French and British, uh, and then some Spanish settlements uh, as you went uh, further west. Um, but by and large, that's Native American land, um, and the U.S. at that time, uh, as of 1790, uh, hovered on this Atlantic seaboard.
0: A major part of your book is showing how the U.S., at least initially. Methodically consolidated its hold on territory on the territory under its possession, before pushing farther west into land controlled by indigenous people and by other powers, and that meant before the onset of homesteading, curbing the ambitions of rogue settlers who tried to strike out on their own. And so, I think this a lot of people probably assume that it was just sort of the outright unleashing of of U.S. military might that that pushed the country west but in in fact what you show is that it was the careful advancement of settlers that was used to compensate for what was in reality a pretty weak central government at the time and you have this this uh quote from jefferson that i think is evocative of this this philosophy or the strategy when we shall be full on this side we may lay off a range of states on the western bank from the head to the mouth and so range after range Advancing compactly as we multiply. Explain how the leaders of the early United States looked out across this continent that they wanted to conquer and what obstacles they they faced and 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 the strategies that they developed to overcome them?
1: Yeah, that's a terrific question. Um, and you're right, uh, the Jefferson quote is, is, is really evocative and, and really powerfully situates uh, a lot of my argument. So when the leaders of the United States, the founders, um, looked out across the continent, um, they saw on their own side a very small military, um, a military that was not um, professionalized, um, and uh, they didn't see themselves as having uh, much military strength. What they saw as they looked beyond their borders um, were um, – what they perceived to be um, and this is guesswork a uh, large part but uh, but they certainly perceived to be very large uh, indigenous um, militaries, uh, Native American populations both in the south, um, such as the Cherokees and creek um, and in the north um, uh, as well such as uh, the miami and um, uh, and iroquois um, that these had large large militaries far exceeding what the United States had. These militaries were also uh, buttressed by um, the looming empires, the British, the French, the Spanish, um, and so uh, who had alliances uh, with these Native American uh, nations. Um, and so the United States saw itself militarily as certainly not the hegemon on the, on the continent. Um, and it wouldn't see itself that way until, you know, you could start to date maybe the 1830s. Um, uh, you could maybe go back to 1812, which is a pretty decisive war. Um, but um, uh, when but the certainly... U.S.
0: defeats the British and their indigenous allies
1: and their indigenous allies, yes, that's right. So um, so that's that's a lot of people see that as a turning point. Um, I would. I saw c- uh, continued fears in the 1830s um, after um, Indian removal, um, where because Indian removal, um, on the one hand, um, you know was it was an act of genocide. It was um, it was a military triumph of the United States in moving um, you know more than 100,000 people uh, from one side of the Mississippi to the other. On the other hand, it created a new um, militaristic problem in which that it put hundreds of thousands of native Americans, um, in tightly in tight quarters, um, west of the Mississippi river. And, uh, American statesmen, um, feared that and feared that, um, that they were not, that not ready to, to face such a battle. Um, so that, that's what they saw. Um, and they saw the possibility of, of using their, their populations their settlers as a way of strengthening the territory. Now that had, strengths and weaknesses. Um, first, the weaknesses is that if you let these settlers go on their own, um, they got in all sorts of trouble. They provoked wars. Um, because Before they, the
0: government was ready to fight them.
1: Before the government was ready to fight them. That's right. Um, and so the, that's why the British banned uh, settlers moving west, because the British, uh, before the United States, um, feared that it was just creating uh, conflicts and potential for war that they weren't ready to fight. Uh, and that's how the United States felt. So they they banned, uh, in a variety of ways, uh, the movement of settlers. This didn't stop all settlers from moving, um, and some did. And places like Kentucky uh, um, flourished with the number of settlers that were going there, in part because there weren't a lot of Native Americans in that specific area at the time. Um, but so the United States tried to control this this settler movement. And what it saw, and this was based on, you know, many of the, of the uh, early leaders like Washington and Jefferson and Franklin uh, and Henry Knox, uh, having studied a lot of the, the Roman Empire, um, is the belief that you could use settlers, especially settlers who were also soldiers, sort of citizen citizen soldiers, um, to settle territories, and you do it by keeping them tightly packed um, and thus defending the territory as they moved along along. But so once scattered, they made themselves vulnerable and and open to to attack. Uh, But using them, um, to use Jefferson's words, advancing compactly as we multiply um, to keep those compact territories as you move forward uh, was that they saw a way of defending the territory they had and mobilizing for for the next steps.
0: So the, the British banned settlement beyond the Appalachian Mountains in the Proclamation of 1763, which I believe was signed after the French Indian War? Correct. And then the the US adopts a similar strategy though with kind of a moving line that they consolidate their population behind and then and then push forward. Neither government does that out of some sort of humanistic solidarity with native people on the continent but but because of strategic considerations. I wonder is there an irony to be found? In the fact that the new U.S. government, which had revolted against the British precisely in part because of restrictions on settlement across the Appalachians, that they found themselves embracing a some a somewhat similar policy once they governed?
1: It is. Yeah. Um, I was going to say just as a caveat to your first point, there were some who I think had humanistic interests. Um, people like uh, Henry Knox, I think, um, at least uttered, you know, real concern uh, for Native Americans. Um, And, um, so there was some of that there, um, people like Jefferson did as well, but Jefferson also then uttered uh, horrible things. So, uh, um, so he was all over the place. Washington was all over the place. So anyway, so there was elements of that. Um, uh, as far as, I mean, yeah, the irony. I mean, this is, they, they initially struggle with this policy um, with the Articles of Confederation. Uh, they don't have a lot of strength um, and they don't have a lot of control over land. And part of the reason that the Articles of Confederation struggles um, out of a gate is that settlers and states, you know, which are filled with settlers like Georgia, especially, um, are Taking, you know, using their own policies, they're following the spirit of uh, the revolution um, as they as they perceived it, and uh, they're getting themselves into potential war. You know, Georgia, especially, uh, was battling um, with with indigenous people, you know, on their borders and the the Creek, the Creek, right, and Cherokee uh, to a certain extent, Um, and then but the Spanish are right there. Um, and again, this is the Spanish Empire, um, and the United States is not the United States of two thousand and eighteen. Um, it's 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 a fledging, you know, small little uh, set of colonies um, up against the, the Spanish Empire, and we wanted no part of it. So. Um, so as, you know, as we move from the Articles of Confederation to the Constitution, the writing of the Constitution, um, this is one of the real uh, concerns is to gain control over land um, and prevent settlers um, from, from, you know, doing, doing what they wanted. That, that also created a lot of backlash, you know, in places like Tennessee, uh, a lot of the border areas, um, you know, there were efforts to, um, you know, create their own Somethings. I don't know if they were nations or colonies or what. Uh, like uh, the state of Franklin, um, there were there were moves. You know, again, the United States wasn't. Um, it was it was more like a, a, a you know um, an expansion sports franchise. <laughs> it was a, the <laughs> idea of being an American didn't mean that much, and people were making lots of deals. Um, and so you had people making deals with the Spanish. You know, um, and people were worried
0: be, that like Western Pennsylvanians would ally with a foreign power, and all these kind right. of frontier regions.
1: That's right. That's right. Um, and so, yeah, so you know, there wasn't this strong alliance so much with the United States. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, going further into the 1800s, I mean, people like Stephen F. Austin you know, and others. So, um, so the, you know, there were real concerns about this. And that's why the United States was trying uh, desperately um, to, to, to constrain constrain these moves. This is, it doesn't always work. Uh, and the United States has to often give in. You know, it's part of the reason Kentucky becomes a state – uh, more quickly than it probably would have, is because they feared that people in Kentucky were looking to to ally with the Spanish. Um, the Spanish were certainly recruiting them. So you know, there's, there's, it's obviously uh, it's not uh, the U.S. being this hegemon, you know, doing exactly what it wants, but it's but it has a plan and it's it's it it's it's using it to to bring about real goals.
0: It's a it's a hegemon in in making, but we we shouldn't retroactively assume its inevitability from from where we're sitting today.
1: Correct. Correct.
0: Um, I want to ask you about the development of Indian removal policies over time. The the first stage, I think, culminates in the Indian Removal Act of 1830, which, as you mentioned earlier, is quite straightforwardly an act of genocide against those indigenous people who remained east of the Mississippi. And then reaches its end point with the incorporation of what remains of a much reduced Indian territory as the state of Oklahoma, What are the early ideas about what should be done about the fact that people already lived in these vast territories that the U.S. wanted to seize? And how do those ideas change over time?
1: That definitely changes over time. Um, And it changes – in pretty direct relationship with how strong the United States is and how uh, strong or weak they perceived, um, uh, Native American nations to be. Um, and so in the early decades of the United States, um, they actually, it was a lot of deal-making, um, buying land from Native Americans, often, uh, restricting their own populations, um, uh, being respectful, um, not, you know, I don't want to overstate it, but, but it's showing some respect uh, to Native American nations. And then, you know, um, um, Obviously, there was there was conflict within that. Um, but as the United States gets stronger, it gets uh, you know it it gets more confident in itself, and it, it starts to to attempt bolder moves. Uh, Indian removal of, of the 1830s is an example of that. And Indian removal at that time was both a, a bold, and a, as you say, and as I said, uh, you know, it's a clear example of genocide. Um, it was also, in some ways, um, it really taxed the, the American nation at the time. It was not seen as a successful, and I, I'm using air quotes uh, uh, you know, to use uh, for such awful you know, uh, language uh, uh, dealing with genocide. But the United States did not see it as a successful movement because many people did die which they had hoped not to occur. Uh, it was very unpopular in the United States. Um, it, it divided the nation, um, and you know, it arguably led to uh, a change in uh, presidential po- power. And, and you know, it was, it was a really a lot of congressional uh, testimony. I mean, it was in, in some ways similar to you know uh, issues with Iraq and with Abu Ghraib and places like that. It had the same kind of of real controversy, um, and it, so it really taxed the nation. Um, Moving decades further, um, you know, in, in all the way up to to the end of the century, into places like Oklahoma, um, the United States felt it had the much strong. Stronger hand, uh, and it kind of and it bullied its way forward. Uh, it stopped signing uh, treaties and stopped buying land from Native Americans uh, with the Civil War, um, and uh, played the role of a bully um, uh, in that period after. Uh, and was and it was it was much more violent in many ways. I mean, it was certainly violent pre-Civil War, uh, but starting with President Lincoln really becomes a much more violent affair uh, throughout to the end of the century. By the time then you get to Oklahoma, um, Oklahoma is you know, Native American territory, as you said, has shrunk uh, dramatically. Um, the population has shrunk dramatically. Uh, its its uh, power uh, uh, had shrunk dramatically. And there you get this wave of using uh, homesteading uh, where the United States sends in over a million people, uh, a million settlers into um, Oklahoma, land that becomes Oklahoma, uh, really in about 10, you know, 15 years. So uh, it's just, again, it's, it's sort of a final step of this uh, advancing compactly as we multiply. Now we're multiplied uh, and we just overwhelm the the remaining uh, Indian territory uh, with, you know, literally more than a million people.
0: How do the ideologies underpinning those policies change under time? Because it seems like in the period of Indian removal in 1830, that it's straightforwardly, they can't be on our land. This land is ours. But by the time of the Dawes Act in the late 19th century, there's all of this talk about in, indigenous people Needing to be civilized by having their land broken up into individual allotments and and breaking down tribal tribal gov- governance and and awarding people individual citizenship.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a mix of both uh, throughout this period. The idea of civilizing, or the, you know, the idea of doing doing terrible, arguably genocidal things. On behalf of the good of those people, Um, you know, it's kind of an American tradition. We've done this a lot, (laughs) and and you continue to hear such language today. We did this in Iraq, right? We went there to help build, help their people uh, free themselves and build a nation. Um, Paul
0: Wolfowitz is a very generous (laughs) man.
1: (laughs) So, um, so the ideas were there with, um, you know, with Native Americans. In the 1820s, the tough thing with with Indian removal, the specific moment of Indian removal, is that the Cherokees seemingly had done what we wanted them to do, which was to, you know, write a constitution and seemingly, you know, and and, and cultivate their land and do all the things that we uh, were, we, I'm using for the United States, uh, were arguing that Native Americans were not doing, um, and yet we still moved them. So that showed the, you know, just the bald-faced, you know. Uh, reality of what was at hand, which was just that the United States wanted their land. Um, The Dawes Act uh, was inspired, uh, you know, by uh, Senator Dawes did have a real ideology, I think a sincere ideology that, um, again, going back to John Locke, that people needed to cultivate land to be good uh human beings and citizens and so he thought that there was too much land for um the native americans who lived on on indian territory and they would be better served by these allotments giving them 160 acres of land um, which is what we gave to settlers as well um, via the homestead act so um you know to to further to encourage their their you know move towards uh, citizenship now, at the same time, most of the motivation um, for uh, the Dawes Act and for the uh, taking of Oklahoma was, was not about civilizing Native Americans. It was about gaining this land, first for railroads and for, um, you know, lots of of, uh, of business uh, interests, uh, and then also for these, these settlers to move these people in. So, you know, the ideas are out there. I don't want to, Discard them and say they're disingenuous. I think there are people who meaningfully believe these ideas. Um, but at the same time, there's always a uh, arguably much bigger crowd uh, that just sees this as land taking uh, and has no real interest uh, in, in Native American um, Interests uh, or you know concerns. There's a lot of protest uh, at the time of Oklahoma uh, from Native Americans who live there. Um, they go to Congress and they they speak quite eloquently um, on behalf of of keeping their land. And no one really seems to be to to care. So um, and that includes people like Dawes who just thought they were misguided.
0: John Locke actually plays a role in writing the Constitution of one of the the Carolinas. Is that right?
1: Yes. Yeah. Far back before the United States yeah
0: before in in the in the colonial period and has this whole idea which you just referred to that people um, don't really have true ownership of the land if they don't if they don't cultivate it mm-hmm. and that various American settlers and and British settlers prior to them are, are drawing on this philosophy but to what degree do you think this philosophy is really kind of independently driving force in what sort of actions people took and to what degree was there just this sort of racist ideology that was read, ready made to fit political economic ambitions and and perceived necessities as was the case with with slavery and the development of, of anti-black racism as its justification
1: i mean i think it's a there's a bit of both um i think there was a sincere belief in these Lockean ideals um uh, i read a lot of um uh, settler, uh, petitions to Congress, um, where they were asking for land that they cultivated. Um, and you know, I mean, you read the, it's a very genuine spirit of that They, they have this land, um, that they, or they believe they have this land that they've cultivated it. They've become good citizens. As a result, they've done good things for the United States. They've helped, you know, make it better, uh, a better place for the United States and a safer place. Um, so they, I do think they, that is a a real ideology and something they believe. Now the racism part has two pieces to it. One is, you know, which is one of the biggest ways in which racism always exists is that it just leaves another population invisible. They didn't, most people didn't even think that other people owned this land. The U S government thought about it because the U S government had to, uh, participate in transactions, um, either, you know, legal or, or violent to take the land. But for a lot of these settlers, um, they didn't really know or weren't, they weren't interested in whose land it was. It was a land was without theirs.
0: people for a people without land.
1: Right. That's right. And they ignored the fact that Native Americans did in many ways claim land. There were lots of markers um, from, you know, signs, <laughs> actual signs, because Native <laughs> Americans saw that America, that the United States was using signs. So they started using signs. These own. people
0: are into signs. <laughs> Maybe right. they'll, they'll get it if we tell them to get out on a sign. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's right. Um, so. Um, they they ignored this, um, and uh, and then you know then the other part of racism, which was much more, you know, the the explicit part or the raw part, um, is that when Native Americans showed that they owned the land, like the Cherokees did, and. Um, they ignored that too, and they can't, you know. So, when pressed on their ideas, uh, much like, uh, you know, I would say, uh, a lot of Republicans today, when pressed on their ideas, suddenly, when there's a, a pragmatism that helps them, they they discard the the ideology that it was seemingly based on, right? The the idea of uh, maintaining a deficit seems to have disappeared today. Uh, the idea of uh, everyone having a right to cultivate their land uh, disappears when um, uh, the land is, you know, not uh, it, it needs to be acquired by the United States, and and the people who have cultivated it are Native Americans. So then they they change their their policy. So it's it's a mix of those, uh, and certainly at the end of the day, it is raw power that you know that that's the result. But but there is a complicated mix in in, in what's going on.
0: I, the the case of the the Cherokee, I think, was particularly revealing of how, regardless of the the complex relationship between power and ideology and 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 whatnot that 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 ultimately it boiled down to instrumentality because the cherokees did everything possible to present themselves as the sort of of nation deserving of respect by the united states and i think it even authored and uh, drafted a constitution modeled off of the u.s constitution that's but right to, that's to right no, to no avail they were moved in huge numbers west in a Campaign that I think you write resulted in an estimated quarter of the tribes' death.
1: That's right. That's what Yeah, it's, the estimates vary, um, and um, and the estimates varied at the time. They did a lot of congressional investigations where they varied. But yes, uh, uh, generally, um, certainly, many thousands died um, in in the attempt of, of starvation and of, of cold weather and and um, of just the uh, uh, the, miserable, uh, the, the miserable conditions. Um, many died as well from the violence. Uh, you know, the Cherokee were put in basically like cattle quarters um, as they were rounded up in the final stages. Um, it's a really ugly, um, horrible period uh, uh, for the United States. Um, and um, when Native American nations like the Cherokee. Really confronted the United States in many ways. It's that it's it's that that moment when you know when the United States is confronted on their ideas that they get most brutal
0: This moment makes me think back to my Interview with with Aziz Rana and the discussion we had about the contradictions between White freedom and self-rule on the one hand and the subjugation and exclusion of non-whites and and various other others on the other hand and the this this brutal genocide was not carried out without resistance or contradiction. As you mentioned earlier it was a national scandal and it played a role in shaping the, the nascent abolitionist movement. Um, I just think it's important to pause here because as as, as brutal and thorough as there uh, as this general consensus of of white supremacy and empire was it, it was not it was not totally seamless. Correct.
1: Correct. Absolutely, it was not seamless at all, um, and um, uh, there was. And, and as you say, it it did lead to really uh, uh, it it expanded the abolitionist movement. Um, many people who were abolitionists um, changed their uh, views, both about Native Americans, about Native American removal, uh, about their views of 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 uh, Africans and African Americans in the United States. Um, this was a brutal moment, and uh, and the violence. Um, and I think this is something, you know, that like, uh, Abu Ghraib, I thought was a nice example, nice, I don't want to use that word, uh, an example, um, in, in 21st century, the United States and, and Americans in general are willing to often go along with violent things when they don't necessarily see it, um, or it isn't, uh, as, as blunt and, and, blatant in front of them. Uh, when they see pictures of, of, of torture, um, as they did in Abu Ghraib, suddenly they're confronted with it. And with the Cherokee, um, the news of the deaths of people and the ways in which the Cherokee were being removed, Native Americans were being removed throughout this whole period, going back to, you know, 1776 uh, and before that. Um, but the removal was, um, it wasn't seamless obviously, but it was, it was outside of the, the purview of many Americans when put in their face and they see the violence, uh, it becomes much more, uh, conflictual, uh, and it, and it just, and, and mobilizes people, uh, uh, to confront it and to fight it kind of the same way too, with black lives matter. Now it's not as if, um, um, Police haven't been uh, involved in violence and 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 so forth uh, for for many many decades but now that we have uh, phone phone cameras um, uh, it becomes more you know uh, apparent and and, and it can mobilize a movement so so yeah so it certainly wasn't seamless um, it was very conflictual um, and especially as it became more more brutal uh, the, the more conflictual it became
0: on the the issue of the contradictions of of Indian removal politics and other Remarkable thing that you pointed out that I was not aware of was the way that Southerners um, defending slavery instrumentally embraced the Indian cause. Mm -hmm. That was weird.
1: Yes, Yeah, there's a lot of weird coalitions. Um, And and it's part of the reasons why we we forget it. Uh, The Cherokee uh, side with uh, the South in the Civil War. Um, and it's not entirely clear if they were being – I mean, there was a lot of strategy going on. Um, so there were, there were a couple of reasons why sub, the South um, started to, to support um, uh, Native American causes. Um, one is that um, after Indian removal, um, Native Americans arguably – uh, had land in you know, an Indian territory was a huge part of the West. Um, this was a territory that was being that the United States wanted to open up for settlement. Um, and these settlers were coming from Europe, and they tended to be from Europe and from you know the uh, northern states in the U.S. Uh, and they tended to be anti-slavery. Um, slavery wasn't seen as a, a way; uh, wasn't seen as popular in these new territories. Um, and so the South feared that the more um, settlers moved west uh, and and started to demand new states, uh, the more the South and the enterprise of slavery was was going to be. Um, weakened and threatened, um, and, and put really in peril. So, so at that point, uh, the South becomes real supporters of, of Native American interests and in maintaining, uh, maintaining their rights on the land because they don't want settlers to, to come in. Um, and then so the, you know, the Confederacy, um, during the civil war, um, proposes, uh, to, to help, to have Native Americans on their side, uh, proposes opportunities for Native Americans to have their own nation, um, as a result. So there's, there's, yeah, there's some really, um, you know, it, it makes sense, uh, but some uh, some um, interesting, I'll use the word interesting, uh, you know, coalitions there that you wouldn't expect.
0: I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at patreon.com. And by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for DIG listeners like you. One that you might like is The Authoritarian Personality, by Theodora Adorno, Elsa Frankel Brunswick, Daniel J. Levinson, and R. Nevitt Sanford, with an introduction by Peter E. Gordon. What makes a fascist? Are there character traits that make someone more likely to vote for the far-right? The authoritarian personality is not only one of the most significant works of social psychology ever written, it also marks a milestone in the development of Adorno's thought, showing him grappling with the problem of fascism and the reasons for Europe's turn to reaction. Over half a century later, and with the rise of right-wing populism and the re-emergence of the far right in recent years, this hugely influential study remains as insightful and relevant as ever. This new edition includes an introduction by Frankfurt School scholar Peter E. Gordon, and contains the first-ever publication of Adorno's subsequent critical notes on the project. The authoritarian personality by Theodora Dorno, Elsa Frankel Brunswick, Daniel J. Levinson, and R. Nevit Sanford out now from Verso Books. I want to ask one more question about about Indian removal, which is how the courts dealt with it. and you point to a Supreme Court case um, from eighteen twenty three Johnson v. McIntosh or Mtosh Emintosh, I'm not sure how uh, it's correctly spelled. I've seen I think it's both McIntosh. ways. Yeah, McIntosh, exactly. spelled that way,
1: yeah.
0: Um, and Justice Marshall writes for a unanimous court, and I'm going to read this at length, not for your benefit, but the listeners, because I think it's really revealing. Marshall announced that they quote will not enter into the controversy whether agriculturalists, merchants, and manufacturers have a right on abstract principles to expel hunters from the territory they possess, or to contract their limits. Conquest gives a title which the courts of the conqueror cannot deny. But the tribes of Indians inhabiting this country were fierce savages, whose occupation was war, and whose subsistence was drawn chiefly from the forest. To leave them in possession of their country was to leave the country a wilderness. To govern them as a distinct people was impossible, because they were as brave and as high-spirited as they were fierce." and were ready to repel by arms every attempt on their independence. What was the inevitable consequence of this state of things? The Europeans were under the necessity either of abandoning the country and relinquishing their pompous claims to it, or of enforcing those claims by the sword, and by the adoption of principles adopted to the condition of a people with whom it was impossible to mix, and who could not be governed as a distinct society, or of remaining in their neighborhood— and exposing themselves and their families to the perpetual hazard of being massacred. Frequent and bloody wars, in which the whites were not always the aggressors, unavoidably ensued. European policy numbers and skill prevailed. As the white population advanced, that of the Indians necessarily receded. The country in the immediate neighborhood of agriculturalists became unfit for them. The game fled into thicker and more unbroken forests, and the Indians followed. The soil to which the crown originally claimed title, being no longer occupied by its ancient inhabitants, was parceled out according to the will of the sovereign power and taken possession of by persons who claimed immediately from the crown or immediately through its grantees or deputies. I think it's a remarkable ruling, and it's issued, you point out, the same year that they decided, I think, that mere cultivation of the land was not enough to protect white squatters against the owners who claimed original titles. Can you explain a little bit about how the judiciary made sense of the racial politics of expansion?
1: Uh, that's a good question. So, I mean, it is a absolutely shocking and, and horrific uh, statement, and to come from uh, uh, our our great uh, uh, you know Supreme Court uh, <laughs> Justice uh, John Marshall, um, one that um uh, to somewhat his credit, he he somewhat disavows in later years uh, during Indian removal. His the Cherokee cases are a little bit softer. Uh, he doesn't disavow them entirely, but he's he too he's one of the people who gets conflicted and upset by what is going on uh, with the Cherokee. Um, and, and removal in a few years later, but um, but really, yeah, shocking, shocking language, very Lockean language. Um, uh, obviously, the language of the of the colonizer uh, and seeing the United States as a uh, as an imperial uh, enterprise. Um, so, I mean, the courts in general. Uh, I mean, McIntosh is really one of the very first moments when the court even recognizes that Native Americans exist on the land. Uh, prior to that, um, uh, a lot of these land deals of the courts would deal with, uh, Native Americans weren't even mentioned that they owned the land. Um, there was a, the, the most famous one, uh, might be Fletcher v. Peck, which dealt with the, the Yazoo, uh, land scandal of the 1790s, a really big uh, event at the time. Um, And um, there was a footnote that noted that the land, the the conflict of Fletcher v. Peck was between uh, different Americans um, fighting over, you know, who had the the contract. Um, But there was a footnote saying, actually, the land was, was, you know, was owned by Native Americans.
0: (laughs) Just an aside.
1: (laughs) Just an aside, yeah. Um, I mean, what the United States had declared is that they owned all of Native American land. And it it was – there there was – this is a a quick – Tangent, related tangent, but so that you know there was this issue of sovereignty versus property. The United States declared sovereignty over all the land. Um, That didn't mean they owned the property of the land. So, um, so while they owned, let's say, you know, the whole territory to the Mississippi River, uh, then you get, you know, when your feet are on the land itself, there are property rights, and that the United States, um, for the most part, in especially in the earliest decades, negotiated with Native Americans to take. Either through contract or through through um, through uh, purchase or, or some some aspect. So, um, so that's why that, that became complicated. But yes, yeah, so the courts don't really deal with with these questions at all. And in the way, in, in a sense, that they they are uh, racially exclusionary is just again ignoring uh, entirely the fact that these other populations uh, or, or indigenous people, specifically, um, had had rights. Macintosh is the first moment that confronts. Justice Marshall in the court, and you see this emphatic, you know, um, statement, which in many ways defies what the U.S. government had been doing prior to it. I mean, the U.S. government, con- uh, you know, contrary to Marshall, the U.S. government was, as, as I said earlier, kind of more pragmatic. They were purchasing the land. They were treating Native American nations as nations. Um, and um, they were being, you know, I wouldn't say respectful, but they were at least uh, attempting to negotiate uh, with all that land. And then here Marshall comes in with this uh, declaration um, of the colonizer, uh, which was, you know, this is the 1820s, a moment when when the language is kind of moving towards what would become Indian removal and, and a much more, a uh, comprehensive belief in the United States that they are the the uh, colonizers, but but this is a turning point, and and Marshall helps precipitate that turning point um, by uh, by you know turning the the, the dial up uh, uh, up many 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 steps.
0: One thing that's remarkable about your book is that your findings are so remarkable in the sense that you write that this period has really not been studied much by by academics even though it's one of the nation's earliest and most foundational political projects and this is another thing that i discussed with aziz rana last fall which is this bizarre and troubling way that the settler colonialist roots of this country have i guess beginning around world war ii and the cold war become invisible to so many of us as americans and i wonder if you could talk about about why that is
1: you know historically it's, it's always seemed like we never had a history um, we're always you know uh, redoing ourselves um, but you know I- Uh, More directly, we don't make it a history that uh, we don't put it in people's, in in front of them, uh, and force them to deal with it. Um, We only, uh, you know, this year uh, have an African American museum uh, in Washington, D.C. Native Americans is also, you know, really uh, marginalized in, you know, in sort of the monuments of, of the nation when we look at. Uh, Who our heroes are Andrew Jackson, you know, one of the leading uh, Indian killers um, is, you know, still on the twenty dollar bill Um, and on
0: a portrait prominently displayed in Trump's White House, I believe.
1: That's right. And and it's somebody that not, you know, Trump isn't alone in seeing him as a hero, Um, despite, um, you know, despite the the off-Broadway bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson. Most Americans don't know the stories of Andrew Jackson and and know that he is a, a genocidal um, you know, president that he, he, he embarked in genocide. Um, so it's, it's, it's an interesting thing that the United States um, is, has been able to, to erase. Um, and, you know, so why that is, um, I don't know. I'll, I'll give just sort of one anecdote as a possible reason uh, was when I was in Berlin and I was looking at the, the Holocaust Memorial that is right there. You know, this massive Holocaust Memorial is right next to the Brandenburg Gate. Um, so it'd be like putting uh, a massive slave memorial or or Indian removal genocide memorial right on top of uh, the Washington Memo- memorial, right? Yeah. Uh, or Washington Monument. Sorry. Um, and you know perhaps what is needed is, uh, and I, I don't want to use the word needed uh, because I would never uh, um, want this, um, but is defeat, and it is you know having being forced to confront your past. Um, Germany was forced to confront their past. Um, they certainly didn't want to do it prior to that. Um, uh, you know, the United States has been able to, I mean, we've had the luxury, um, of not having to confront our past. We've, uh, been able to avoid these things and not have to, to face up to them. And, um, because
0: there's continuity of regime basically.
1: That's right. That's right. Um, so, you know, perhaps at different, you know, at times we can, we can piecemeal, start to address some of these things and, and, uh, make them, you know, more a part of our history, um, in a certain way, you know, these last, this last, uh, seems like a century, but last year has, uh, has provoked some of this to f- forcing some of us to reengage with our past, um, to re-engage with, you know, the idea of the Ku Klux Klan and the idea, uh, of, of, of- which
0: was not just a creature out of the deep South of the Years following Reconstruction, but also of 1920s Middle America, mainstream right. Protestant WASP culture.
1: That's right. That's absolutely right. So, um, you know, so maybe some of these ways we we are forced uh, to deal with this, but um, but it's um, it's something we vitally need to do. I think also, you know, Americans um, are really afraid of doing it. They don't want to face this. They don't want to. There's sort of the sense that if you If you uh, embrace or recognize um, our our racial history, it changes everything. Um, And I don't think as as somebody who writes about this and who uh, sees very explicitly the, the, the racist history of the United States, I don't think it changes everything. I think we can still aspire and recognize many positive things that we are um america is uh to use part of a a trump uh hat america is great in many ways um
0: (laughs) just just he (laughs) happens to hate most of the reasons that it's great
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's right that's right yes um but you know so we can be complicated and still be and still celebrate right we we don't have to be uh um you know all or nothing and I think a lot of Americans struggle with that. As soon as you criticize it in any way, you know, like um, it's like the Colin Kaepernick kneeling. Like, how can you know? You can't. We can't deal with this at all. Um, but why not? Why can't we just, you know, we don't have to accept that America is a horrible place. We can just start to, you know, recognize that it is complicated. It is full of moments that are awful. Um, uh, that are violent, that are are extreme civil rights violations. And, you know, it's something that we can put together and, and try to make sense of going forward.
0: Well, as is probably entirely clear at this point, I was thoroughly converted by reading Two Faces of American Freedom in terms of how to think about this, which is just that, um, you know, many of the answers to problems in this country are to be found in in, in the contradictions between between egalitarian liberty and hierarchy and exclusion and exploiting those contradictions for for progressive transformative ends, finally.
1: <laughs> um, right, that's right. And Rana's, I'll say, uh, Aziz Rana's, it's an excellent book, and for those listening who haven't read it, um, I, I absolutely uh, recommend it. It was uh, very influential for me reading it, um, and, um, and you're absolutely right. It, it captures... Really powerfully, um, uh, this uh, that it's it's in this conflict in this uh, that really um, we start to see what what America is.
0: Well, one last note on on when we about how we stop thinking about this country as a settler colonialist one. When we when Americans start looking in the mirror and suddenly not seeing something that's somewhat like a South African, it seems to me that it's during the period for much of American history when the fact that this was a explicit project of demographic racial engineering, that during those periods that it was embraced. And it was only when that brazen racism went out of fashion that the history was shrouded beneath these layers of national mythmaking about national redemption and, and things of that sort.
1: I think that that's right. I mean one of the things um that was surprising to me was for how how long the United States was explicitly a white nation, and that it saw itself as a white nation. And by when I, I use the word "it" there, but uh, what I mean by most American leaders saw the nation as a white nation. There were very few people that were uh, in any way um, proclaiming uh, any kind of uh, racial equality or racial diversity uh, as part of the nation. There are moments. Um, but those moments also tend to be piecemeal and as a result of, of, of a problem that needed to be fixed, uh, you know, the 13th, 14th, 15th amendments uh, in response to slavery and the Civil War. And even then, that didn't really change the understanding of America as a white nation. It was still seen as a white nation with an exception, um, a population that the United States had to deal with um, in a certain way. But, um, but it, it's, it's a very recent idea that the United States um, becomes a, a, a a really sees itself as a multiracial nation. Even, you know, the the Statue of Liberty, and this gets into the the debates now about immigration. Um, The United States was very pro-immigrant in the 19th century, but it was was for white immigrants. And that was explicit. Um, And the Statue of Liberty Liberty was for white immigrants. It was in the Atlantic Ocean or whatever the, you know, the harbor in New York City. Um, And it looked, you know, it looked towards Europe. Um, The United States has struggled mightily when it it looks in other directions. Um, And as you say, when it does so, it does it without any real, um, you know, explicit conversation. And that's the explicit conversation we're now having today uh, about uh, the, you know, immigration changes post-1965, uh, uh, which started opening up the United States to immigrants from uh, from south of the borders and, and, and west of the borders, um, and uh, led to a much more multiracial society that we have today. Uh, but it's one that we don't explicitly talk about and explicitly understand.
0: Shifting gears, the South and African slavery are obviously really important parts of this story. And one thing that stuck out to me is how much of what Southern nostalgia casts as this sort of ancient regime romantically lost in time was in reality land that was seized from indigenous people settled and cultivated not that long before the civil war.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, and, um, and slavery really expands, uh, with, uh, with the Louisiana purchase, um, and with the movement, uh, West uh, in places like Mississippi, uh, Louisiana, um, and it's starting to, and even in places like Texas uh, that are getting right up to the Civil War. Um, also, you know, in addition to that, uh, which is part of a, is the crisis of the Civil War, is the South is looking to go much further, and that's where it starts to think about places like Cuba um, and uh, other parts of the, uh, of the Caribbean and so forth to expand its slave empire.
0: You make the case that the the debate over territorial expansion in the early to mid 19th century is is often in conventional accounts reduced to this contest between supporters and opponents of the westward expansion of slavery. You know, thinking, you know, we all learned about about Kansas and um, popular sovereignty in in school and. You right, I think, that this is not wrong, but that it is too limited because it obscures this basic consensus that underlay the entire project, which, again, was that the United States was a white country for white people and that it had an unquestionable right to seize land from indigenous people, to exclude black people from states that were not slave states, and ultimately in the late 19th century to exclude exclude Asians. So it, can you explain what what role slavery did play in the politics of westward expansion to what degree you agree with the conventional account and to what degree you're complicating it
1: the, the conventional account you know makes a debate between basically the abolitionists um and the south um, and the south supported slavery and uh, opposed racial equality uh, they were the racists and the abolitionists were um uh, in favor of equality and you know and um a a, a diverse society. Um, And that's not false. The abolitionists opposed slavery and the the South uh, supported it. Um, And they certainly had different views. Um, And and certainly among, you know, as you get into the most radical of both sides, um, among the abolitionists, you get some real um, true believers in equality and diversity that would, you know, withstand the test of time as as great uh, supporters of human rights. Um, But as a whole, um, the abolitionists um, were more opposed to slavery than they were in favor of racial equality or racial diversity. Uh, The abolitionists, um, like the South, and this is where I think there was a a much deeper consensus, uh, both sides believed the United States was a nation for whites. Um, The difference prior to the Civil War was primarily that the South wanted black labor as slaves. Um, um, and the abolitionists didn't want that at all. They wanted a white nation. Um, and thus they
0: supported colonization.
1: They supported colonization. It was an
0: overwhelming opinion amongst non-radical abolitionists amongst mainstream abolitionists.
1: That's right. And even among the, the more radical abolitionists, actually, that's where, um, um, Native American removal was quite influential. The the violence of Native American removal led, um, you know, many of the early abolitionists, or not many, but some of the early abolitionists to realize that colonization was going to be equally violent um, and equally uh, a human rights uh, uh, atrocity. So there was some movement there. But, but by and large, most abolitionists, and certainly the moderate abolitionists, um, and we should remember, the abolitionists were never a majority of the population in the North. Um, they were always a pretty small Small group, um, but um, among their, you know, their, the, their mainstream members, um, colonization was always something they supported—the idea of, of of sending Africans out of the country and keeping the United States white, um, and, you know, so there's there's this irony in that I say in the book. Um, and I don't want to push it too far, but, um, you know, the South was always somewhat more comfortable with racial diversity. Uh, we use the word diversity today as a positive word um, by that, by their sense, having African slaves um, because they had a hierarchy. They, they wanted a diverse
0: hierarchy, whereas whereas they in the north, they really wanted what Richard Spencer would now refer to as an ethnostate.
1: That's right. That's right. Um, or they didn't. And they were troubled by such views. They wouldn't say it as he would say it because they didn't want to admit it. So they would just, what they liked was that it was a white nation and they didn't have to deal with any diversity, um, to struggle over it or to the degree that they did, it was so trivial, um, that it could be, you know, handled in a, in a trivial manner. Um, but what you do see in the North throughout these years, um, is, um, You know, as you mentioned, many of the states uh, were excluding um, African-Americans from entering the state or certainly owning land in the state or having any kind of rights. Um, Very few states had voting rights for African-Americans and those that did had very uh, quite small, uh, if not trivial, numbers of African-American people living in them. Um, And you point uh, to states
0: like Oregon that simultaneously, I believe, uh, outlaw slavery and bar black people from entry.
1: That's right. Yeah, Oregon is a good example because in the 1850s that they um that they are passing their constitution, writing their constitution and and yes, yeah, so they have these votes simultaneously um to oppose slavery uh, overwhelmingly um, and over, equally overwhelmingly endorse uh, the exclusion of, of blacks into the into the the territory, um the state. So, yeah, you see this in a lot of places um in the north and um and so that does really complicate Uh, this divide, what you see again is is this deeper consensus uh, uh, that we are a white nation. Uh, We have different definitions of what that white nation looks like, um, but, uh, but the consensus is there.
0: You argue that the debate over colonization, though, fractured that white supremacist consensus because it pitted southern white supremacists who wanted that diverse hierarchy and We'll call them northern ethnostate white supremacists who uh, just didn't would prefer that black people had never been brought to North America in the first place. That this divide in that white supremacist consensus provided an opening for radical abolitionists who were never, you know, a numerically majority force in, in the country.
1: That's right. Yeah, it's another one of the ironies of this period um, is that uh, most northerners and, and most abolitionists wanted colonization to uh, and to send out you know by the 1860s uh, more than four million Africans that were living on the uh, in, in, in US borders um, and their chief opponents um, were not the abolitionists but the South and the reason the South opposed it uh, was because they wanted slavery and they made, and they wanted to maintain slavery and when these fights uh, occur they, they occur in most, in, in earnest, in the early 1860s, um, after the South leaves, uh, the Confederacy leaves the United States, and President Lincoln is promoting colonization um, as part of the emancipation process—that we would emancipate and then colonize—and um, his some of his biggest opponents are the the uh, border states like Kentucky, which again are supporting slavery. They didn't fight with the South, but they still support the idea of maintaining slavery, um, and so. So yeah, you so you have this this very weird coalition, uh, and it's in the midst of this of this this conflict between uh, the Lincoln Republicans and um, the uh, Kentucky or the border state, you know, uh, Democrats and somewhat Republicans, uh, that you get this radical abolitionist uh, movement that is able to, you know, have have a real opportunity uh, to to do something.
0: The issue of of slavery profoundly shapes everything you talk about in your book, but not just slavery in the U.S. The abolition of of slavery in Haiti also, by the revolutionaries there, has enormous reverberations in the U.S. It's what caused Napoleon to decide to give up Louisiana, and it also sent many slaveholders fleeing from Haiti to Louisiana. Can you explain a bit about how the struggle of, of Haiti, which, of course, Trump has so viciously and ignorantly recently attacked, how that shaped the United States' political development?
1: Yeah, we should we should thank Haiti um, uh, because Haiti is the reason for the Louisiana Purchase, um, uh, the the Revolution in Haiti, and and um, you know it's hard to say obviously what would have happened uh, you know when we're dealing with steps uh, uh, centuries ago, but um, the Revolution in Haiti. If the revolution in Haiti had not happened, um, Napoleon was planning to uh, put a much bigger military into New Orleans and a much bigger settlement and to make uh, the Louisiana, you know, parts of the Louisiana territory uh, much more strongly entrenched with the French empire. Um, the revolution there, um, he lost his base and he initially thought about whether to fight that base. Uh, and in fact, pr- President Jefferson uh, initially encouraged him to do so, um, but... Um, when he gave up that uh, uh, the the ability to, uh, gave up the, the possibility of maintaining Haiti, he also gave up uh, the idea of having a, a, a strong colony in Louisiana, and that led to the Louisiana Purchase. So it's it's the Haitian rebellion um, that really sends the French out of the region uh, and gives the United States not just the Louisiana Purchase, um, but you know, a huge opportunity, basically, to move forward or move uh, westward, westward, because uh, one of their chief opponents uh, decides to uh, to abandon the scene. So we have Haiti absolutely to thank for that, and that's a, a critical moment in ah in American uh, American history.
0: I want to switch gears and talk more about about immigration. At the same time that indigenous people were being killed and removed, white immigration from from Europe was mobilized as. A really bedrock feature of this project of demographic racial engineering to, to ensure that the building blocks of settler colonialism, which was, was not, as you argue, the army, but rather white people residing in particular places, that those people were present in sufficient numbers to take and hold land. And I really like this one sentence you wrote, that, that federal land policies represented the earliest form of national immigration policy offering the prospects of free or nearly free land proved critical over and over again in promoting masses of immigrants from European to American soil. So immigrants were critical to securing the land, and the land was critical to securing the immigrants. I'm finishing, or I'm working on edits of a, of a book on on immigration politics right now, and this was really helpful for me in thinking through how the history of U S territorial expansion is inextricably a history of immigration as well. And also more broadly um, if you include black history in the sense that black history is very much a migratory history as well from Africa by force. And then the long feared mass migration to the North and West. And so what your book really got me thinking about was how we need to think of all of these things under this broader rubric of demographic engineering restraints on mobility, the, the basic right to be present in a place or one's legal exclusion from it. And for me, your book offered this really powerful analytical lens, not only for the evaluation of history, but also to think about how that history shapes current politics. Um, obviously immigration today but also, for example, the long reaction against the Great Migration that molded so much of the last century in this country.
1: We don't recognize how profound um, I mean, the settler nation is and the importance of immigration, and specifically white immigration, very specifically white immigration, uh, what was this process. And, um, and uh, But when we look at especially you know, land policy, uh, it's a huge piece of this. Um, one of the things I noted also— um, you know, I remember as a high school student, um, not being the the most sophisticated uh, of one, um, <laughs> learning about you know the, the 40 acres and a mule, right after uh, this the Civil War. This idea that that all uh, freed slave would slaves would get 40 acres and a mule, and um, I remember thinking, you know, I and I, I was certainly. Uh, supportive of, of, of you know, all of these things. But I thought, wow, 40 acres, that seems like a lot. And maybe this is because I live in San Jose, <laughs> California, where we lived on like a quarter of a tenth of an acre. <laughs> um, you know, and so, so it sort of it made sense to me why it wasn't you know, so successful. That just seemed like too much. 40 acres seems like a lot of land. Um, but what you realize is actually the Homestead Act was 160 acres um, to, you know, to Europeans. Right, these weren't even Americans. Um, you, all you had to do um, was to claim that you wanted to become an American, um, and you know, in, in some of the places that became states like Wisconsin, Minnesota, um, these were had huge numbers of Germans um, and other no- Northern Europeans who didn't speak English. I mean, imagine the idea. And there was
0: non-citizen America. voting.
1: <laughs> and there was non-citizen voting. That's right. And given 160 acres of land, right? I mean, so you know, you, you can only imagine this kind of conversation, in you know, in Trump's America, let alone Obama's America, or you know, or or anything uh, of recent vintage. So it, it's it's really striking. Um, it, it puts it puts the 40 acres of a mule in a more you know a dramatic context of, of that that it failed because it was one quarter of the land that they were giving to everybody else who wasn't even American citizens. And these are, you know, these are obviously, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't need to finish the sentence. It's, 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 it's an absolute atrocity that, that, um, you know, that this did not happen independent of just the, the specifics of that the land was not given, but just by the fact that, again, such enormous amounts of land were being given, you know, to, to, to white immigrants all with the idea, of course, as you say, uh, to be, to help build this settler empire.
0: One quote that stood out to me from your book was from 1862. It was uh, Wisconsin Senator James Doolittle, and he suggested that the Republican motto should be, or was, emancipation with colonization, homesteads for white men in the territories of the temperate zone, homesteads for colored men in the tropics, with a railroad to the Pacific to bind together our Eastern and our Western empire.
1: That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It was really powerful stuff.
0: I want to talk about how the increasingly polyglot European immigrants were thought of in racial terms during the 19th century. Benjamin Franklin, I'm not sure when this was from, he had initially hoped that existing US citizens would be, could simply just procreate enough on their own to settle the continent but then conceded that European migration would be necessary for people with more industry frugality than the natives to gradually eat the natives out. And Franklin was ambivalent about um, these non-Anglo-Saxon settlers because he thought only Saxons and the English were white, whereas German, Spanish, French, and Swedes were tawny, and Native Americans, Asians, and Africans were both black and tawny. But the U.S. government you write, even even though you know, it, for many people, who, who what, what was popularly and socially defined as white could be quite narrow. The U.S. government, you write, cast a wide net in defining the category of whiteness, and my question is, why is that? You know, because after all, whiteness could would ultimately be construed quite narrowly by the government with the national origins quota laws of the 1920s. So. How was it that that whiteness was such a protean and contingent thing, and why did the government come down where it did?
1: There's a conflict here uh, between what I am arguing, and in part it's because of where I'm looking to make my argument, um, as opposed to some others. You know, there's this this uh, literature called whiteness studies um, that has looked at the 19th century as how certain immigrant groups, especially the Irish, um, is a, is a notable one. David Roediger, uh, wrote a, a book, Wages of Whiteness, uh, a really excellent book about how the Irish became white. Um, and so that, um, you know, he argues and others argue that many of these, um, white immigrants, when they first came to the U S they faced a great deal of racism. They were seen as, as black or they were seen as certainly other, um, and they, they, uh, faced a lot of racism, um, or ethno, you know, uh, prejudice, um, at, at the local level. I'm looking at, in my book, um, you know, it's the federal government and, in Congress and the president and bureaucrats, and I don't see what, what he and others see. That isn't to say that they're wrong. I think they're just looking in different places and seeing it. I think they're right. Um, but the federal government didn't see it this way. And so you ask why, um, and I think it's that the government needed people. Um, and so it was more pragmatic about it. it just, it felt, um, it, it, it there was a, a belief that um they needed people to fill spaces and uh they looked around Europe broadly to see who was where they could get people to come and the Irish were available. Uh there were a lot of Irish uh, that were, were willing to come. Uh they looked out the, the only times actually uh very, very rarely did I see Congress members express uh disapproval of of uh, white immigrants. Um, And it was usually very small groups in small places. But Congress uh, and the federal bureaucracy was always looking, basically, you know, like recruiting in Europe. They were looking around trying to find populations that would come to this place and this place and this place. And I should say the U.S. wasn't alone. Mexico was doing this. Uh, Much of South America was doing this. They were looking for people to fill the, the continent, both uh, for strategic and security purposes, also for economic purposes, you know, for jobs and those kind of things. And so they were much more pragmatic and open to, to different types of populations. Uh, it was, this was never a cons- perfect consensus. There was always debate about this uh, and conversations as to who was white and who was not. And, um, uh this This went on during the um like as a, a dramatic example was during the war with Mexico, uh, which I write about uh, uh the Yucatan um, and whether the Yucatan would become part of the United States um, Some people argued um President Polk among them uh that uh the settlers in the U- Yucatan who are mostly uh, Spanish descent that they were white and then there were others in Congress who said they were not white um, and should not become part of the United States. So,
0: And those who believed that that they were white um, believed that they were involved in basically a race war with, with native people in the Yucatan and that it was incumbent upon the United States as a white nation to intervene on their behalf.
1: That's right. Yeah, and, and the racial politics there gets really um, quite complicated uh, to use a, an objective word um, because you hear you hear members of Congress saying things like, um, part of the reason that Mexicans um, in the in the former Spanish Empire uh, that they were weaker than the United States is that they um, they didn't exterminate the native population in the way that the United States they thought did, um, and that they uh, were uh, intermarrying and inter uh, you know and, and, and Joining with Native American populations south of the U.S. border in the way that they perceived, um, often incorrectly, uh, that was occurring in the United States. So the, this kind of you know racial engineering um, was often talked about in very explicit terms, um, and um, and that's you know and you saw this on in places like the Yucatan and, and these kind of conversations. But so I mean there is this I, I guess maybe as a as a whole there is this pragmatic role that. Um, The U.S. government often plays that doesn't fit what the population necessarily uh, perceives itself. Um, There's a a writer of uh, immigration policy in the 1960s, uh, John Scretney, uh, who makes this argument, um, again, about the pragmatism that it isn't so much that there's a ideological agreement in the government, but but a sense of, like, we have a political or policy problem, and we need a pragmatic response to it. Um, and so you see that from the government in ways that you don't see that from uh, society or from even local politicians.
0: Am I right to say that there's a bit of a analytical theme in your book that ideology matters, but at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, that it's political, economic... Instrumentality—that's more the horse leading the ideological cart.
1: Yes, absolutely. I'm, yeah, eighteenth I, Brumaire. Always, uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, eighteenth Brumaire, and um, President Trump and the current day Republicans have <laughs> always been skeptical of um, of ideology. Uh, as the dominant uh, understanding? Not that it's not important, um, and not that there aren't certain people that are truly motivated by it. But I, I do think ultimately it's materialist, and and um, you know ultimately comes down to 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 self interest.
0: You mentioned the position of of people who believe that Mexican settlers had basically debased themselves by by mongrelizing themselves by mixing right. their their, right. their Spanish blood with with uh, with natives, and uh, this was something that. That Hitler repeats in Mein Kampf in praising the the ethnic purity of, of white Americans as compared to to Latin Americans.
1: Yeah, that's scary stuff. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, you know, and, and there is an interesting. I mean, this is another failed moment before the United States becomes as hegemonic as it does. There were there were arguments uh, in Latin America that the true supreme race uh, was a mixed race. Um, as raza cosmica. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, and there's still remnants of that now. And, and, you know, believers of that. And, and, um, you know, it's not, it's not obvious that that would fail, uh, compared to, I mean, actually for, for DNA purposes, there are probably reasons why it should make sense, right. To be a more supreme, uh, uh ideology as opposed to the white, the whiteness ideology of the United States. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to the dig as well. You should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com.
0: Hey, this is Dan Denver, your host. We started this show as an experiment in late 2016 after Trump had been elected president and I had been laid off. And it worked. It turns out that thousands of people find our in depth analysis of capitalism, patriarchy, and racism, immigration politics, mass incarceration, and the drug war useful in their struggles to transform our dystopian world into something better. We can only do this show with listener support, which means your support. So please join the hundreds of listeners who have already done so and make a contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. That's patreo dot com slash the dig. It'll only take a sec. Thanks and back to the show. The last subject I want to talk about, which is also the final portions of your book, is the sort of counterfactual empire that never came to be and as you mentioned earlier in this interview there were all kinds of places that the us wanted to take over and that they didn't ultimately or didn't keep them because they were too non-white to make into states but it was too undemocratic to rule them forever in complete despotism and the the racial engineering project explains a lot and you say it served to limit expansion as often or nearly as often as much as it promoted it or facilitated it. And the Dominican Republic comes to mind. um, And the delayed statehood for Arizona and New Mexico also comes to mind. Um, And also uh, you were talking a little bit about this earlier the you do a you do a close case study of, of Mexico and the U.S. and of Texas, the Mexican American War and the Treaty of Hidalgo, and I had no idea about this before I read your book, but there was this this huge debate over just how much of Mexico to, to seize, because the U.S. at the end of the war occupied land all the way to Mexico City. Explain a little bit about how the demographic engineering project at the core of American Empire limited its reach
1: so as, as with the case of mexico the united states um very carefully uh in in crafting the treaty um took uh, roughly 60 percent of mexico's land um and i think just about one percent of its population that's really a striking um difference and uh there were some, um, a very small group that had this, this all of Mexico, uh, they wanted all of Mexico and the United States did have, um, uh, the military was in Mexico city and had control over Mexico city. Um, but, uh, you know, that's where the United States wanted the land and it didn't want the people, um, where, so, so that's an example of where the United States turns back. Cuba is another example. Uh, the United States going back to Thomas Jefferson, uh, thought it was pretty much impossible that the United States shouldn't have Cuba because of its position, geographic positioning um, you know, right off the coast of, of Florida. Um, but there, it was continually defeated. Um, w- when we think of Cuba, we usually think of the 20th century fights or even the, the end of the 19th century. But uh, in the early 19th century up th- through to the Civil War, it was again about that there was too large a population of slaves, of, of Africans and of mixed uh, people of mixed race, um, and that it would be very hard to settle it with white white Americans. This is the constant conversation is, can we get white Americans? They didn't use the word, they didn't even, well, they use the word white uh, and they used the word American, but they were, they were synonymous. Um and so this is a constant conversation. How can you get whites into these areas? And then once you would do so, you could make it, it would become part of the United States, be, uh, you know, uh, be American. And so, as you mentioned, New Mexico, um, you know, the book uh, begins, it, it, it follows the statehood um, across the, the, the continent and New Mexico and Arizona come in as the last two states uh, on the, on the continent, um, i guess alaska is part of the continent so so maybe that's not technically true but of the 48 we'll uh,
0: say contiguous contiguous continent
1: contiguous yes contiguous so uh, of the 48 contiguous uh continental states um new mexico and arizona come in last and they're interesting that they're last because uh they were territories for over 60 years they came in with the war with mexico um new mexico itself was always the area that was was that had the largest Mexican and Indigenous populations, uh, at least uh, per capita. Uh, California also had a very large, probably a larger Indigenous population, but uh, was a bigger state, bigger, and uh, had more more whites that uh, entered there to uh, into the mix. Um, so New Mexico uh, is this is this last place, as is Arizona. Arizona. Um, just like Arizona today, was always the white area of, the, of these two territories um, and was always clamoring to be the, the white and, you know, a white supremacist state, uh, whereas New Mexico was, as it is to this day, uh, much more Latino, uh, much more indigenous. Um, and Congress um, talked extensively about the need to have more whites uh, there to, to settle the area and, and allow for it to become American. And only when they thought there were enough people uh, did it finally become American. Uh, I say at the end of the book, I start the last chapter with the story of um uh geronimo um you know and, and who which is a great story oh it's such
0: a striking and disturbing passage
1: it is yeah, and it, and you know because it relates to uh Osama bin Laden and uh, the fact that uh, President Obama, when uh, they had the mission to get Osama bin Laden, it was Project Geronimo, um, and they used Apache helicopters right to attack bin Laden. the The striking parallels are is that Geronimo was in many ways the bin Laden of the late 19th century. He lived in the hills of of Arizona and New Mexico, or the mountains. Uh, who came out to you know? Um, uh, terrorized the American settlers, uh, and then escaped and was hard to find, you know, impossible to find and impossible to chase down. Uh, and so defeating him, uh, in many ways and kind of the ways that, you know, that attacking Osama bin Laden, um, is seen as as the next frontier of, of taking that threat away from that frontier and allowing it, allowing the United States to, you know, to, to take over and, and truly incorporate it. Um, and so Geronimo's capture, um, at the end of the 19th century, is is is, is a really symbolic as as you know, uh, powerful moment where the Apaches and and indigenous populations in the the Southwest there are are finally uh, uh, seen as being you know uh, controlled.
0: And this is also a critical juncture in history because it marks the the closing of the frontier, which right. is important for a lot of reasons. It's it's when this this frontier, uh, which was the Outward limits of, of a country that were being expanded by settler immigrants becomes the border or begins to become the border, I guess, which is more of a, a fortress to keep migrants out. So it's a different conception of the limits of the country. And it's at that moment that you talk about this this shift at the beginning of the 20th century when the U.S. is exploring a shift from settler colonialism, which has defined the country from the get-go, to a more European-style empire. And this this echoes what we were just talking about with Mexico, but there, there's this whole debate, but, but ultimately, it becomes untenable for the, the U.S. to take and maintain control over places where they can't ensure a white majority, with important exception being Puerto Rico, um, and Philippines for decades. Um, and you, right,
1: but, but neither of those become a uh, states. in the way that Hawaii becomes a state, uh, and Hawaii becomes a state again, the same racial politics. It's because, uh, they thought and they, and they did, they fulfilled whites becoming a majority of Hawaii. Um, and, uh, that, that enables them to make it a state. Hawaii was different from the Philippines um, yeah. in that it was thought that it could be settled. Um, and Puerto Rico, right, who, which remains, you know, and now much more, somewhat more in the public eye, um, you know, which re- remains a, a second class citizen.
0: I'm, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit more about the debates over the Philippines, because um, you, you have a really nice Du Bois quote here about the the contradictions at work between the, the Teddy Roosevelt approach and the more white supremacist isolationist approach, which is that. The tendency of the great nations of the day is territorial, political, and economic expansion. But in every case, this has brought them in contact with darker peoples. The older idea was that the whites would eventually displace the native races and inherit the lands. But this idea has been rudely shaken. The policy of expansion, then, simply means world problems of the color line.
1: Yeah, really powerful uh, quote from from Du Bois. And and absolutely right. I mean, that's... You know, that's where the United States confronts itself is is in in confronting these new places. And we see, again, the white settler state, the response of a white settler state, which is we we ultimately, uh, you know, turn back uh, and decide not to uh, continue expansion. Or, you know, we then get the the 20th century version of expansion and 21st century version of expansion, which is expansion by by military and expansion by uh, corporate corporate power. Um, and not by but not by settlement Um, the the settler empire of the frontier is is ultimately closed you know with the except with some small exceptions of of hawaii alaska um, forward
0: and the debate in in many ways it seems is still alive today thinking of liberal and neoconservative interventionists on the one hand who believe that the u.s can play this benevolent tutorial role as guardians of third world wards right and the sort of isolationism that trump at least espouses or has espoused, though, though not really practices.
1: You know, what is interesting, and obviously it's to a, uh, a strange degree with Trump uh, because he, he himself, you know, is promoting his business empire, um, but it's not part of the international global corporate empire, right, that, that sees expansion and sees um, a global economy, an economy of many different races and peoples as being a part of, right, that they're much more um willing to have a um, um, links and and um, an immigration policy and so forth right that is that is much more uh, diverse because they see their economic goals as, as, as being closely tied President trump you know I mean he's such a an amalgam of so many strange and contradictory and and problematic things but uh, <laughs> but there he's you know he's he is doing something that you ought to see more pushback from you know real corporate power um, because because of his his America first or or really you know white America first, which is just this you know again a a 19th century uh, or mid 20th century idea that he's he's trying to to reinvoke um, with with more success than probably most of us uh, could have imagined.
0: My last question is along similar lines of the implications of your argument today, and you make a few points about that in your book. One is how the dynamics of white settler colonialism left pockets of diversity in part because the American state was too weak to snuff them out, but also critically because the system of caste capitalism for so long required non-whites for economic exploitation. And, you identify these contradictions as at the root of this enormous diversification of the United States that's going on today. That is entirely contrary to the principles upon which it was founded. And you also find this to be at the root of the, I guess what can only be called a white nationalist in a, in a more broad sense response to that diversification. You also write that much of American Libertarian anti-government ideology is also rooted in the story that you're telling in in the settler belief that that they were conquering the continent on their own, even though it was the federal government providing them with the land. And this is something that happens again and again in American history, including, of course, with uh, post-World War Two suburbanization. I'm wondering if you can say a little about how reading this this history can m- make sense of in a way that that denormalizes and denaturalizes some of some of the the things that are so taken for granted about about American politics and American political development why the united states is the sort of country that it is
1: big question um and um yeah i mean it's a couple things one i mean on the, on the last point about you know the settlers always believed that they were doing this on their own and this was something about the way in which the U.S. government um, operates. Um, there's a historian, Brian Ballow, who has made this point that um, the government was often out of sight. Um, it, it it used, like like land policy, which I focus on, a lot of it, um, it's different than using a military or a huge bureaucracy um, that is right in your face and confronting you. Um, it was, you know, because it was just fo- focused on land grants and contracts and, you know, and, um, and stipulations of where land was available or not, the settlers were able to believe that they were doing this themselves. And so there is this real strong belief, um, that the settlers are individualists, which they in part are, um, and don't need the government's help, not recognize. And don't want to
0: be told, uh, you didn't build that.
1: That's right. Yeah. They believe they, they without recognizing all the ways in which, you know, the government is critical. I mean, it's just the same as, uh, you know Michael Moore when he back when he used to have a TV show. I remember him going uh, to Newt Gingrich's congressional district and <laughs> doing a like a, a speech with all these people saying like we are anti taxes and everybody was saying yeah yeah you know, <laughs> supporting it. and then he's like so let's get off let's you know get off the highway. <laughs> <laughs> Unless, you know, like you can just start pointing point all the things that the federal government paid for. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, it's a really powerful point. It just needs a constant reminder the government is responsible for so much of this. Uh, even when the government isn't paying for it, uh, the government is so critical for creating the cooperation that would otherwise not exist. Um, that's one of the biggest things the government does is it it forces cooperation among selfish people. Um and I use the word selfish, you know, broadly. Now, I mean, just we're all, people are out there looking for to, you know, get their own interests, and uh, and the government is able to 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 enable that. It enabled Donald Trump with all the bankruptcy laws, right? He couldn't be where he is today because he couldn't have filed bankruptcy without the United States. They're the ones that allow this kind of thing to happen. So that's, I mean, just this constant powerful myth and and that, that not just, I mean, Republicans obviously proclaim this myth and exploit it most uh, dramatically, but Democrats do too. Then, you know, uh, it's hard to get people to say, hey, the government does a lot of good things and a lot of things wouldn't happen if it wasn't for the government. Um, And so, you know, that's where the kind of the, the neocon Democratic Party, at least, you know, post uh, at least Bill Clinton, um, has really tried to hide the, the role of the government's uh, uh, position there. Um, I wanted to say one thing you know, related to earlier part of your comment. Um, there has always been uh, an underlying tension between corporate interests um, and settler interests. Uh, and this goes all the way back to the earliest days when there were these, uh, you know, big companies that were, uh, their goal was to get as much land as possible and make money off it. And the settlers who wanted the land for themselves, they wanted to cultivate it. They wanted to, to build their own homes or whatever it was that they wanted to do with it. Um, and, and that is something that, that Trump has capitalized on, you know, now, um, the anti-corporate element of these settlers, there's rhetorically there's a sp- at least Yes, Tory, exactly, absolutely. Um, and there's a real spirit and truth to that. Um, and then dating you know, back to
0: Shays and whiskey rebellions. and
1: that's right. That's right. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't have to be, but it has almost always been white. Um, and politicians like Trump have been able to uh, you know exploit these divisions even more so. Um, in ways, but it is tr- it's true in places like Oklahoma, where I think, as you mentioned, um, you know, African-Americans tried to participate as well and, and join in the, um, you know, the, the, the Sooners that, that uh, went out over Oklahoma land, uh, but were really, uh, um, you know, quite immediately, the settler state of Oklahoma uh, excluded them uh, and, and passed a lot of Jim Crow laws. So, so these, these spirits are there, and they, they underlie a lot of, of what we see now. Um, what we see now, I mean, I think the biggest thing um, of what we see now um, is how, I, I don't think we realized how recent uh, a, a multi-diverse uh, uh, diverse America is. Um, it's really, you know, something that's, that's only a few decades old or maybe five decades old uh, and hasn't been embraced. Um, this does get to the final point that you asked about here, which is these pockets of diversity. Um, and the United States has always had these. And um, some of it, it was pragmatic. Some of it was for economic reasons. Um, some of it was, you know, so places like New Orleans, um, which were always diverse or Hawaii or New Mexico. Um, and these places are important uh, because they, as pockets of diversity, they provide an entrenched place uh, where diversity will continue to thrive even when the nation or the nation state is Promoting and proclaiming something quite different, you know. Um, when I was first ending this book, uh, I was hoping to end it a little sooner, and I was hoping uh, that perhaps uh, Sarah Palin would be the the candidate to run against Barack Obama uh, in 2012, <laughs> uh, because then you'd have the candidate from Hawaii, um, the diverse, uh, you know, part uh, of African uh, descent, dark white, <laughs> uh, running against uh, you know a, a Trump type person who denies the diversity, despite living in a, a federally funded state <laughs> that was uh, uh, entirely indigenous uh, before.
0: Literally living in a <laughs> white welfare settler state.
1: <laughs> That's right. That's right. So that would have been perfect, but uh, unfortunately, <laughs> not quite, quite there. But, uh, but yeah, so I mean, all of these things are resonating. Um, and I think it's even, you know, even back in the 19th century, the white settlers have always kind of denied the realities of what you know white settlers believe in capitalism and by believing in capitalism, you believe in expansion, you believe in a certain amount of exploitation, um, and you believe uh, ultimately you have to confront other populations. And so uh, the United States has always had struggled to put these things together, which is a white nation with, with the fact that we are constantly expanding and constantly dealing with populations uh, often purely for economic reasons. That are non-white, and so how do we how do we do that? And that's where you see the Republican Party today. You know, going back to the George Bush years, right, with immigration policy, um, you've got a lot of Republicans who recognize, well, you can't have our corporate economy without this global population, and then you have the Sarah Palins and the Donald Trumps that, um, you know, that live in this kind of yeah, this white settler colony um, without recognizing how they profit, which we know, right, Trump hires a mar-a-lago you know uh, uh a quite global population while he while he you know i mean the uh, obviously ironies if not uh inconsistencies of uh, are, are abundant here
0: and again i think as we've discussed it's, it's within these contradictions that we can push forward notions of, of freedom that are not just about non-interference but more thoroughly about non-domination and that are not exclusive but are but are universal the seeds are as, as 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 bleak as things can be <laughs> i think the the seeds of these things are there
1: that's right and and that's where um because the united states is a diverse nation and it is um to a certain degree there is no turning back um and the united states will have to to confront this uh, there's not going to be uh even with trump trump's deportation policies there's not going to be a full colonization to make the united states a white nation again um so we do need to embrace um uh, a much more substantive vision of what it means to be an American, and you know, at some point we will, uh, or at least try to, in, in some, you know, halting way, um, and it will be rejected and fought, kind of in the same way as you know we see with uh, about sexual harassment and the idea of of gender equality, you know, going on, with the the debate now with Aziz Ansari, right, that, that there's a way in which as we push towards a more substantive vision of equality, uh, you get the bigger reaction. Um, even from you know people on the left, right, who start to to say this kind of thing is nonsense. But that's what we need. We need a much more substantive uh, vision of equality that embraces our our diversity, and and we will get there um, soon, hopefully. <laughs>
0: hopefully, indeed, um, Paul Freimer. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. This is really great, and and I really appreciate uh, all the uh, uh, really uh, really difficult and thought provoking questions.
0: Paul Freimer is a professor of politics at Princeton and the author of Building an American Empire, The Era of Territorial and Political Expansion, from Princeton University Press. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that the free development of the individual under capitalism is a mere phrase, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, often but not always twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at the Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And if it's on iTunes, please leave us a review. Those reviews, as long as they're positive reviews, help introduce us to new listeners. So does spreading the word to your friends. Please make propaganda on our behalf; it's always appreciated. And also, please do find us on Patreon.com/slash/theDig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a huge help.